Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I wanna welcome everyone to this uh, webinar and episode of The American Idea. So glad that you could join us today. Um, we're gonna to be talking about a very important and timely topic, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, it has been in the news, it has been on the front page, and even if it has receded a little bit from the public mind, it nevertheless remains a critical geopolitical and strategic matter uh, for the world and, of course, for the United States. What should we do about the war in Ukraine? What should American policy be? And how should we understand the conflict? All critical questions facing the United States today. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined in the conversation about those questions with a great friend of the Ashbrook Center, and in fact, an Ashbrook board member, Rebecca Heinrichs. Many of you have seen Rebecca on um, national network television. Uh, you've seen her on Fox News. You've seen her on Fox Business. You've seen her on CNN, just to name a few. She is a regular contributor, national security expert, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, um, she received her bachelor's degree here at Ashland University in the Ashbrook Scholar Program, one of our proudest alums, and also received her graduate degree from the United States Naval War College, where she received the highest possible meritorious um, achievement for her work there. Uh, she now is a civilian consultant for the United States Pentagon, working on matters of national security, national defense, and her particular expertise in foreign policy and national security is missile defense and strategic ballistic missile defense. So we have a real expert with us this evening on a very important topic. Let me invite all of you into the conversation. Please, your questions are welcome. We will try to get to as many of those as possible. If you wouldn't mind using the Q&A function, that'll be the appropriate way in which I can relay those questions to Rebecca and we can continue the conversation. So Rebecca Heinrichs, thank you for, so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be able to have this uh, conversation with you. And um, if you if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and kick it off and kind of uh, sort of big picture why I think Ukraine is important. And then we can kind of just have a conversation about where we are at this stage of the war. Please do, yeah. So um, the, the last part of your introduction of mine, um, thank you for the gracious introduction, but the it's, it's important because my area of focus is really the way I explain it to people's um, I've really dedicated my my focus um, in national security policy on how do we prevent major war. So I would when I was a freshman at Ashland, uh, that's when 9/11 happened, and it was very popular at the time for people who kind of came of age professionally who were interested in national security to do a lot of counterterrorism work. 
And, and I, in fact, uh, even took a course at Ohio State speaking Arabic for a summer because I thought maybe this would be useful for my interest in, in national security. But, but I kept getting kind of pulled towards sort of major power politics, um, the Cold War and Ronald Reagan's um, thinking about how to keep a Cold War cold and not going hot was an interest of mine. Um, and, and so that, that's, that's where my interest developed, which brings us to the current conflict. Um, I, I have been focusing on the threat from Russia for, for many years. And then a lot of uh, your listeners be, obviously are very familiar with, of course, the constant um, awareness now of the threat from China. So, so here we are about 40 years after the Cold War, the two major powers that have the ability and the desire to do great harm to the United States are Russia and China. And so that that's kind of the big chessboard. And, and so, you know, uh, Russia is now, yes, it's attacking Ukraine, it's seeking to subjugate Ukraine, it's an Eastern European country that's not a member of the NATO alliance of which the United States is a, is a member. Um, but but it's but Russia's ultimate goal, like Putin's ultimate goal, is is to break up NATO. It wants the U.S. influence of the European order gone, and wants to replace it where Russia is dominant and influential and reclaims territory and peoples that that Putin believes are rightfully his. Russia, he never recognized the borders and boundaries that Reagan and Gorbachev settled on um, after the the Cold War, and. So that's kind of the table set, if you All right. will. So we're already getting questions, as you might imagine. <laughs> and one person wants to know um, a little bit about the Donbass region and the particular area of the world. So help our listeners, um, because many of them will be familiar with the war, but some will not, and some don't necessarily know all the historical context. Take us a little bit into historical context when did when did the Russians invade? Uh, it was over, I think, a little about a year ago. And what are their stated um, aims in the invasion? Great, yeah, that's it's a really important question because if you th this is where people then analysts begin to begin to separate on what they believe is true, sort of the difference between what Putin says his aim is versus what is actually his aim, and so that. This question is actually really important. So, so I already said sort of, I kind of said what I believe is that I believe that Putin wants to subjugate the entirety of Ukraine, but he he has made other claims, other territorial claims that are just sort of salami slicing parts of what we understand to be the sovereign territory of Ukraine. So people talk about the Donbass region, um, Crimea, of course. This here's another sort of point of, of, of clarification. So we talk, you mentioned that, yes, we're, we're talking about a war that's been on now for just over a year. February 2022 is when, when Putin invaded. But this is really the, the most recent invasion. The last invasion was 2014, in, where the Russians came in during the Obama administrations and took Crimea. So all of these, for the purposes of your listeners, I mean, this is, these are peoples and territories where there are ethnic Russians, where there have been peoples who have an affinity for, for Russia, culture, history, people, government, who live there, who then Putin is claiming is rightfully Russian territory. Now, geopolitically, all of this territory is valuable. I, there was a, Medvedev is the former Russian president, who is really sort of like the fake president. Putin's always been the one that's been in control over the last um, many years since I've been tracking this issue. But I think Putin was kind of like the shadow president, the prime minister at the time that Medvedev was, was president during the Obama administration. 
Medvedev had one of these drunken rants recently on Twitter where he was saying, nobody cares about Ukraine. Ukraine's a garbage, you know, territory. It's a Reddit. It's not even a real country. Um, it's not true. It's a real country of real people with real borders, um, real governing system. Um, we can talk about the corruption issue. But the land is fertile, is fertile ground. They, it's known as the breadbasket of Europe. And so there's also it's a it's a great it's it, it would be of great value to to the Russian government to take it and be able to benefit from that land territory and people. And it was a part of the Soviet Union, right? And under oh, yes. Soviet domination. Absolutely. So that all of this, so this is sort of gets back to you know when Putin gets really angry and says and explains why he's doing what he's doing, he actually is he's always long claimed that Gorbachev made a horrible mistake. In ending the Cold War and in 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 in, in, in permitting um, parts that of, of of what Putin believes are actually great Mother Russian territory to to be uh, part of essentially these sovereign territories that no longer are recognized internationally as part of Russia, but that was the deal. Them's were the breaks at the time, and and these have all been um, internationally recognized borders. And so yes, so so Putin is Putin is making yes pre-Soviet era claims to these territories. Um, but it even goes even further back. He sort of sees himself as a modern day czar, Russian czar. Say, say a little bit about more about that, because I think some people will know Vladimir Putin's history, that he was in the Soviet intelligence services, and people will think, well, therefore, he must have been a committed communist. Um, what do we know about Vladimir Putin's um, sort of political and ideological views? So he, I, I think the best way to sort of to understand him is, yeah, it's not, it's not really sort of clear cut kind of like Soviet communist or, or it's, it's, it's not that kind of ideology. It's much more Russian nationalism, although even that word is fraught these days because people have different ideas of what they mean by that. But there's a lot of sentiment of, of the former Russian mother's state glory associated with how Putin thinks about himself and what he's trying to do. But it's a rejection of the West as what we, we call sort of the free world, the West. It's a rejection of that, which is democratic societies, um, capitalism, um, as we understand it, um, uh, sort of Western ideals. It just, Putin has never wanted to be a part of that. And the reason I think that this is in, is important because it's like every Republican and Democrat administration tries to do a Russia reset. You know, they look at Russia and they say, why in the world can't Russia be part of the West? There's a lot of, you know, there's Christians there. We've got a Judeo-Christian founding. Um, it's the Russian Orthodox Church. You know, why, why are they Eastern in, in so many ways? Why can't they? So there's always this great effort, which then always frustrates me because when you see Russia once again invading a European country and you hear people say, well, it's because the United States didn't try hard enough to bring Russia into the West. It's like everybody has given it a good college try. It's been a decision on the part of the Russians to reject that and to feel paranoid and threatened by these flourishing democracies um, in, in Europe. Uh, and as I understand Russian history, that tension over are we part of Europe or are we not has been there for oh, hundreds of years. Hundreds of years, and it is it is part of, and this is sort of, this isn't even a criticism, this is a statement to understand sort of anthropologically, people, governments, the way they work. 
histories are, are, are uh, important, memories are long, and, and, and there's a lot of idiosyncratic cultural things that go along with peoples, and, and, and it's important you do geopolitics to really think about them and appreciate them and, and understand something about them, and to not make the, the mistake that a lot of Americans make, which is to think that because we think certain things make sense, that therefore all these other people will also agree with us. That's just simply proven not to be the case. But we, we can talk about all the different, it's been really interesting though to see how Eastern Europe also former, you know, formerly part of the Soviet Union, uh, dominated by fascists or by Soviet, you know, or by communists at one point or the other, have made decisions to be part of the West. I just got back from Lithuania and that's a wonderful example of a country that has made the very determined decision to be part of the West and specifically to be a very close ally of the United States. Um, but the, again, these are, these are decisions uh, affected by culture and history and peoples that, who, who, kind of, who, who make a choice and then act on that. And the Russians have made the choice again and again not to be part of the West. Tell us then a little bit about Ukraine, the country itself. Obviously, again, people have heard about it now. They've seen about They've seen it. They might know Kyiv, the capital, um, but they don't necessarily know much, perhaps, about its connection to Russia, its history with Russia. Um, tell, help us understand a little bit of that. Well, the whole, the, so the, the, all, all of, of Eastern Europe, Central Europe, um, has has been has been struggling since the end of the Cold War to find itself, kind of get its feet under it, um, and and be a flourishing democratic society. All 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 of these Eastern Central, the closer they get to Russia, um, this is an oversimplification, but I explain to people, you know, the Russians have had their their um, their tentacles in these nations for a long time. And so to the extent that you see bad habits that seem sort of Eastern is the extent that there's still great Russian influence trying to kind of pull them eastward. And, and that's been true of, of Ukraine. Um, it, there's a reason that Ukraine is not is still not a member of NATO. It's not because you know the NATO alliance, of course, was developed as a security and political alliance of countries that um, the most important article is Article Five. Um, that where if a country is attacked, they can they can call Article, you know, point to Article Five, and then nations will come to their defense um, in in defense of Article Five. But Ukraine has not been admitted into NATO in part because it hasn't met certain criteria and standards. Um, and and so it's notorious you hear in the news all the time. You know, Ukraine has a corruption problem. It does. It's not nearly as corrupt as Russia. Um, but it's been working really hard at, uh, at, at, at handling that particular problem has been fraught. But it is a democratic society by any definition, a real functioning society, um, uh, uh, prosperous uh, cities. Um, I mean, you think about what Kiev was like before the invasion. I mean, I had Polish friends who were just visiting there and having dinner and, um, you know, fellowship with their friends right before the invasion. So this is not there's a lot of misinformation that it's some sort of backwater of Europe. It's not a real country. It's, it's a real country. It's a real country uh, that has been doing well. And I will say has been doing much better even during this terrible tragedy of the war because of the microscope that, that it's under. Um, it uh, really has, this has been really good for their ability to get systems in place to fight corruption and to develop systems for holding corruption accountable um, when it does happen. So, so that's kind of where Ukraine is today. Um, and we can keep we can go on and on, but it's 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 critical for the global economy. This is where the wheat, the world's wheat, uh, kind of comes comes out of grain. 
um, which is why it's really important. Fertilizer, Ohio farmers rely on global economies for, for uh, production of fertilizer that affects their farms, et cetera. So it's tied into the global economy as well. Yeah, in fact, one of our, our uh, listeners w w wanted to ask about corruption in the Ukrainian government. Uh, you've dressed it a little bit. Is it, um, is it regarded by outside experts as endemic or is it a, a, a relic or a connection to the post-Soviet era or even the Soviet yes. era? What do we know about that? It, it is. It's con it's a, it's a, it's a co its connection is sort of holdover from the Soviet era, and it's been it's like I said, it's it's been working on it. Whenever there are um, uh, politicians running for office, being anti-corruption is something that they hold. And this was Zelensky's big thing. This is what President Zelensky ran on: is fighting corruption and trying to help. Ukraine um, improve in these ways to be more flourishing, you know, um, economically, which would which would be one fruit of of fighting corruption. And so, so it it, it is something that has been ongoing and, and better. Um, I think for the purposes of Americans, since we are one of the we are the biggest contributor to weapons going into Ukraine right now, is on that particular issue because there's so much oversight because the United States is conducting so much oversight. Actually, this is where it gets to the, the point that I made about how corruption is actually being solved through this war is because there's so much there's so there's so much help and assistance on the other side of the Ukrainian border on how to actually conduct audits and hold people accountable and keep track of things that. Um, I've talked to some experts who track the corruption issue, and they say that this war might actually do great good for Ukraine on the other side of it in terms of fighting corruption and knowing how to deal with it. So that's the kind of um, geopolitical context, which is extremely helpful for us to understand. But of course, the war is a war. It's a military conflict. How, what has been the ebb and flow of the war since its beginning over a year ago? And where do we stand now in, in terms of the military situation? Right. So um, I, I, I've been um, very a, a big proponent of the United States um, ensuring that we're not the ones fighting the war. Ukraine is fighting the war. Zelensky's been very clear. He's never asked the United States to come in and help fight the war. He wants, he wants weapons to do that. Um, the United States before the war has been a little bit reluctant and slow to provide all the weapons Ukraine wants as a deterrent um, for fear that this would be provocative to the Russians, that they might actually make the decision to invade. I've been against that thinking, you know, you want to, you want to convince the Russians that it's going to be a, a terrible slog and they're not going to prevail. You want to convince them that before they invade. Unfortunately, the United States uh, did not do that sufficiently and, and other allies and partners, but the United States tends to be the coalescing leading force when it comes to that kind of thing. And, and so Ukraine was invaded. Now, before the invasion, everything that I heard from those who were trainers um, of Ukrainian forces, NATO forces, I had a great briefing right before the invasion from a from a military um, personnel who was there doing some training of Ukrainians, and he said they're 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 a different fighting force than they were in 2014. They have unit cohesion, they're disciplined, there's a spree de corps, they have a sense of national purpose, and they identify as Ukrainians in a way they just didn't even in 2014. And they're going to fight, and they're going to die, and that and then that, that was that was the very somber chilling, um, sad, and frankly, uh, sense that so many of us who would want Ukraine to, to, do, to do well had right before the invasion. And the idea was that the Russians were going to come in and this was going to be two weeks and it was going to be over. They're going to sack Kiev. Of course, we know now that that did not happen. The Ukrainians 
uh, exercise great discipline. They, list, they, they, they took all their training they had from the United States and other NATO countries since 2014, applied it. Um, and not only did the Ukrainians overperform, the Russians underperformed, and for all kinds of reasons um, having to do with the Russian problems in the military. And, and so here we are a year, more than a year over it, it's ebbed and flowed. The Russians have had some battlefield successes. They've not been able to hold all the territory they take. Ukrainians take it back, and it's been going back and forth. Anybody who says Ukraine is obviously winning is not being totally honest. Anybody who says the Russians are totally winning are not being totally honest. It's basically been back and forth. And my criticism has been that the, 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 the United States has been overly risk averse at providing Ukraine what it needs to truly push the Russians out for fear, again, of this escalation that the Russians might use a nuclear weapon, heaven forbid, or something like that. But that has sort of kept, I think, the war essentially a stalemate going back and forth. So right now, as it stands, if we were to look at a map of Ukraine, the Russians occupied territory along the eastern side of Ukraine. Is that largely correct? And anywhere else? Or how far no, that, that, of Ukraine do, right. they, do they actually have? That's basically right. The, and the Russians, remember, you know, it can be very discouraging to see how much territory they still they still have. And obviously, they still have a solid hold of Crimea, um, which is very strategically important. And of course, the Ukrainians would love to be able to take that back. Um, but 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 the Russians have all that. But the Russians have not been able to take Kiev. I mean, the initial goal was to subjugate the entire nation, and and they were unable to do that. It's been to be able to kill and capture uh, Zelensky. They have been unable to do that. And so, um, the, the the whole country across Ukraine of those who stayed, remember the women and children, essentially all left. They've been to Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. Um, other countries, but those with the Baltic nations, Romania and Poland have really all taken them in, not only taken in these refugees, but literally taken them into their homes. There are no refugee camps where there's Ukrainians sort of overflowing. They're, they're in the homes of these people. Um, but that's it. But that's right. That's sort of the battlefield um, situation at this point. Uh, the, 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 but, but again, you know, my, my view is that you don't, you don't get to the end of the war, which we should. We should, we should not be satisfied with a long war of attrition. Russia will win that kind of war. They, they can continue to, to um, much larger country, obviously a much larger um, economy than if it's just Ukraine. And if you have NATO allies becoming more weary and tired of funding a war that doesn't seem to have an end. You, this is a challenge with democracies. You gotta keep convincing your people that this is a good use of their time and you know, their, their, their resources. I think when it comes to clock management, a shorter war is going to be better for Ukraine. And so that should be the goal of the United States and the NATO effort. Talk a little bit, you've mentioned it, but say a little bit more, if you don't mind, about this, maybe surprising, but certainly the, the weakness of the Russian forces, particularly ground forces, and their inability to, to take Ukraine in two weeks, as, as at least some experts expected, and their inability apparently to hold air, you know, territory that they do take in many cases why has the Russian military, which, of course, during the Soviet times, the, the West feared dramatically and had all kinds of scenarios about a, a Soviet invasion of Western Europe and the difficulty of rolling all that back. Um, why has the Russian military not been as successful as a lot of people thought they would be? Well, I think, um, one, we, 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 we have seen the Russians fight in Syria. We know that the Russian warrior ethos is strong. Uh, they are a 
they're they are a fearsome people. Um, we've they're they're committing more crimes in in Ukraine. I mean, there's still you know news continues to come out about the kinds of things that they're willing to do. So they are a they are a fearsome people. So there's a little bit of a there was a there was there was a lot of that kind of that the win and I think an, an overestimation of how they would perform on the battlefield. Well, it turns out you need more than just a, a strong monstrous warrior ethos. You also you also need logistics. Um, you you need to actually know how to move large numbers and configurations of troops and tanks. You need to actually have unit discipline. The um, the Ukrainians, um, if I can say so, I've heard uh, Ukrainians refer to the Russian military uh, members as orcs uh, because they're often inebriated uh, whenever they come across them. So you you don't you don't have a lot of of of, of personal discipline being exhibited um, among Russian forces, um, and you don't have good logistics, and you don't have good battlefield uh, leadership. You don't have a good a good command structure where people are following orders. Leading. You also now some of this there's 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 um, uh, different information coming out about who, the nature of the actual men who the who the Russians are are bringing to the front line. So in the beginning, you know you think uh, they've got their military trained military is going to come in and and do what they do. The, the the leaked documents, some of the leaked documents we know that came out. Uh, so you know, oh, grain of salt. We don't know how they have not. I don't know how the veracity of these, but the leaked documents supposedly that came out that were Pentagon assessments are that the Ukrainians essentially took out more than 90% of Russian special forces, which is enor an enormous loss to, to a country like Russia. Um, and so now a lot of the, the Russians that are the ones fighting, a lot of them have come from Russian prisons and they don't have the discipline, even less than the ones that have already lost their lives for this, for this war. And so um, they're now reaching into to other kinds of, uh, of uh, Russians that might not even be good trained soldiers. And so it's been a series of, of things kind of all together. You also, you know, you I, I'm always careful because I want the Ukrainians to get all the glory and praise for how well they're doing. But the truth of the matter is this is still American training that they've received since 2014. The United States of America, despite the real problems that exist in our military, we're really good at at doing this, um, at the training and the discipline, the strategy and the operations. And um, and so that has been exhibited very well among Ukrainians. And of course, we're also providing um, other kinds of operational support as the Ukrainians fight from the other side of the border, um, um, operating in, in other countries, which has been enormously helpful, targeting and that kind of thing for the Ukrainians, um, invaluable to them. One of our listeners is curious to know, given, given he says, what, what you given the military situation right now, what are the pluses and minuses for Ukraine to go on an offensive campaign? Do they have the capacity? Could they do it? Or is now a time as we head towards summer for them to hunker down? What are you expecting? Um, very good. But the more specific you get on tactics, the less of good at, at, at knowing those things I'm going to be. My understanding, though, is this is that uh, the spring offensive needs to happen, that in order to actually get to the to uh, a conclusion of the war on terms that are favorable to Ukraine, is that they have to be able to launch a counteroffensive that's sustainable, that doesn't just result in losing their successes and going back to where they were. I mean, it's very vague, but unfortunately, this has essentially been um, uh, the, the course of the war, which is why I've argued that the, from the United States has been reluctant to provide. 
Ukraine with the kinds of weapons that Zelensky believes would give him that long sustained counteroffensive that would convince Putin. I mean, Putin's not going to get to the point where he says, sorry, this was a bad idea. But you can convince him that he's going to suffer worse losses that are going to make him look worse. And this isn't he's not going to prevail in this way. And we're going to drain him of political prestige and whatever else he thinks he still has left internationally. Um, he needs to be convinced of that to stop. And so that's why you have to have a long sustained successful Russian or Ukrainian counteroffensive. And that gets back to strategy and specific categories of weapons that, that this administration has still been loath to, to give them. And I can get into those types of, if listeners are interested, but, but there, again, there's this, we're in, we're kind of stuck because if you don't actually want to help Ukraine win, because you're afraid of what winning might look like, that's where you kind of, you get stuck in a box where you have the Ukrainians and the Russians kind of going back and forth like a ping pong table. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks, your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. Um, you, you mentioned Putin, and of course, we've been, you talked a little bit about his larger ambitions as you understand them for Ukraine and then for the rest of Europe. Um, but given the fact that the, the war has not gone the way it seems that Putin imagined it would, or R Russian military leaders and even Western experts expected that it would, and the Ukrainians have been pretty tenacious in their defense of their country. Um, uh, one of our listeners wants to know whether you feel that other Russian leaders and officers are truly supportive of Putin, or are is there internal politics happening here that could either undermine Putin or even displace him. What do we know anything about the effect of this war on the Putin regime? So um, my understanding from my uh, regional Russian expert friends um, who, who have given me their assessments of this is that, um, of course, you know, it's it's very difficult to know. It's an authoritarian when Russia is an authoritarian country, and so it's it's hard to know true public opinion, and and it's very difficult to know the opinions with any um, confidence that is public that the government would be willing to share that we know about this, and um, because it's very dangerous for a Russian general to express dissent. Um, you know, this lot lots of Russian. Uh, seen, you know, wealthy business leaders and people who are influential in Russian government end up falling out of windows um, if they uh, go crossways with, with Putin in various fashions and forms. And so it's very, very difficult to know exactly um, the degree of dissent that might happen. 
However, I do know that there are Russian generals around Putin, the way I describe them as more Putin than Putin, um, who are who are having even a larger, more grandiose version of what is owed to Russia and what Russia can do if they simply went harder. Um, Russian generals who would be more eager to use, for instance, a nuclear weapon to try to get NATO to heal and to not pro can provide um, continued weapons to Ukraine. Um, so it gets it gets even more violent than Putin. Um, and then, of course, there's people I would just presume because this is just the way people are that are more reasonable than Putin and just see this whole thing as a, a giant disaster. But I mean, by any sort of rational, I mean, rational is not the right word, but if you just look at sort of just economically and how much more seriously and and, um, and understood that Russia was, yes, an adversary, but still a serious global power and not a pariah. I mean, that was essentially the, their, the, their position in the world before this invasion. And now they're committing war crimes and they are a pariah. And, and so, um, you know, I, clearly I think this was an enormous mistake on the part of the Russians, but, but Putin notoriously uh, doesn't, doesn't make those kinds of calculations. He'll just keep winging it and trying to figure it out until he gets to the point where he says, I have to find an off-ramp myself and make the best of it and use propaganda or whatever else to convince the Russian people that he still won in some way or fashion, but has to draw this war to a close. And that's what I've argued should be the goal of NATO and helping Ukraine is to convince him that this sustained war effort is simply not going to work well for him personally as the leader of Russia. But this sort of talking about, you know, maybe, maybe we can get rid of Putin and then things will be better. I don't, I'm not so optimistic about that approach. Well, in fact, one of our listeners asked a question connected to exactly what you're saying there, which is, um, how can Putin get out of this uh, in a way that looks like a win for him? Well, that is the gazillion dollar question. Um, you know, I, I, I believe that he, I mean, dictators are, I mean, they're, they're clever liars and he can turn around and, and the Russian people don't have the same access to information, of course, that we, we have. But I think, I think that if he can, if he can turn around and say, look, you know, I've, I'm, I'm still standing. I've got all this great. I'll tell you one way that he has, and these metrics that has improved, that he has a much closer relationship and alliance with China. He's got all these new agricultural deals, other kind of trade deals, energy deals with China. And so he can turn around and say, look where we are now. We really stuck it to the, we've, you know, we've drained resources from the West. We really gave it, uh, gave the Ukrainians, like pummeled them. Um, and so they might be able to just kind of go back and say, I, I've not, I've not been off one of the people who's optimistic about these regions that Russia has claimed since 2014, going back to Ukraine. Um, if, if, if Putin can say, look, they didn't retake territory that we've had since 2014, even though we're not going to let them gain an inch since this last invasion, since 20, since February, 2022, he can claim some kind of um, victory in that form too, solidifying sort of, you know, his view of, of, of where, what is rightfully Russian. Now, you, if when I say that, that immediately makes, you know, I know the Russians are fighting a war right now and the Russians are being, or the Ukrainians are being very maximalist in what they say needs to happen. And I don't blame them one bit for that. I mean, if I were them, I'd be saying, we're gonna take Crimea back. We're gonna take the Donbass. We're gonna take everything back. It's all ours. Um, and we're gonna be a member of NATO. I would be making those same arguments too, 
because you want to make maximalist arguments and try to really demonstrate to the Russians that this can get a lot worse for them. And you strengthen your hand to get to the negotiating table and you find something where Ukraine can end up, Lord willing, a much stronger country, one of the most sophisticated Western militaries with everything that we've provided to them and the training after this is over in a much better position, I think, eventually to join the NATO alliance. So there's going to have to be something for both of them that they can turn back. But Ukraine objectively has got to be in a stronger position so that Russia doesn't just regroup and do this again in a couple of years. Uh, so you 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 brought up there Ukraine and, and NATO. Uh, we have question a couple of questions about NATO and the NATO alliance here. One is, um, what would it take for Ukraine to become part of NATO? They've, they have they wanted to before and not been able to because they, as you mentioned before, perhaps they haven't met NATO criteria. Mm -hmm. Or and is that opinion changed at all? What's the relationship between Ukraine and NATO? Wonderful question. Um, so it depends on who who which capital you talk to in the in the NATO alliance. And so um, my friends and, you know, I, I have a great um, respect for the Eastern Europe Europeans and the Baltic nations, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, because of just their history is amazing. Um, uh, how courageous they are now. And they've, those are the countries that have that continue to contribute well above sort of the minimum suggested 2% of GDP to, to collective defense for the NATO alliance. They do that um, very pro United States. They're not confused on that point at all. Um, Lithuania in particular has not only been very staunchly eyes wide open about the Russia threat, but also the China threat as well, which is um, really leading in fact and saying, we don't want your Chinese communist economic investments in Lithuania. Um, so if you talk to them, they'll say, we are always going to be in danger as long as Russia continues to believe that it can gobble up these countries in Europe that are not members of NATO. First and foremost, that's Ukraine. Moldova is another one. And so, I mean, if you look at Belarus, I mean, Belarus has already essentially been just gobbled up by Russia. I mean, Russia just kind of took it in there. It's got a very, um, it's got a government um, that's been friend very friendly towards Russia. And so um, Russia has, has essentially just gone in there without a shot and taken over. And so if you look at a map of Lithuania, I mean, they're essentially surrounded by the Russians. And so from their perspective, at some point, we, we just can't keep doing this. Ukraine has to, has to be a member of NATO so that they don't, because if you, Russia has not attacked a member of NATO at this point, they continue to push at these, these countries that aren't. And so that's their perspective. Now, you go to Western Europe, you talk to the French, the Germans, they say, that's crazy. You know, you're, you're just going to entangle us in a war because the Ukrainians aren't prepared to defend themselves. They're still going to be soft if they still don't meet all of the standards on anti-corruption, et cetera. You know, that, 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 that we're, we're, that's just going to drag the European Union and NATO into, into a war that we don't want to fight directly. And so there's a different there's a different opinion, and that's probably that's a very generous assessment of the Germans. If I said that in front of my Lithuanian friends, they'd have a very different, I think, or my Polish friends in, in particular would have a different um, probably characterization of the risk aversion that the Germans have in particular. Um, the Germans still always think that there's always a chance we could do Russia reset better and have a friendlier relationship with with the Russians. Um, so it depends. And it's very difficult then if you don't have the whole alliance on board, as we're seeing now Finland and Sweden's ascension to NATO, you've got to have the whole alliance. And Turkey's a member of the NATO alliance, and Turkey's been a real 
um, uh, issue for the alliance to get both Finland now member of NATO and then Sweden probably will come in May, I'm told. Um, but but still, so it's very difficult. Um, but but that's still the, the next NATO summit is in Vilnius, Lithuania in June. And this issue will certainly be discussed. I know there's going to be countries making a strong argument that Ukraine needs to be on a path to join NATO. Um, but of course, I, I don't see that as realistic, certainly on, on, during the ongoing war, because that would immediately draw NATO into this war directly. Um, but it is something that's very important to the countries that feel the most vulnerable to Russian imperialism. And in fact, one of the listeners raises a question about NATO expansion and the role that you think NATO expansion post uh, the fall of the Soviet Union has played it, at, if at all, in Putin's perception of Russia under siege. So I'm going to give an answer that's going to be unsatisfying to everybody, I think, um, which is really it's Bob Gates's view. I, I was reading Bob, Bob Gates has this great book where he kind of explains his view on this. I like that's basically kind of where I landed, which is that no, I sorry, they, that's Bob Gates, the former CIA director. Yeah, former Secretary of Defense Robert Secretary Gates. Secretary of Defense, sorry. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. He, you know, he he um, he. It, it's sort of a the, the the fundamental answer is NATO poses no threat to Russia. I mean, that is one of the big criticisms of the NATO alliance has been that NATO has not been strong enough, and that actually uh, NATO's weakness, especially on the Eastern Front, is what provoked Putin to believe that he can go ahead and salami slice Ukraine, try to subjugate Ukraine, and seek to break where there are um, uh, fractures in the NATO alliance, a differing view, the French and the Germans being risk-averse and reluctant. Don't ever, can't forget the Brits, now they're not a member of the EU, but they are a member of NATO um, and our closest ally, with the UK and Poland and the Balts much stronger and saying you've got to really got to to kick the russians out of, of ukraine because they're endangering and threatening nato nato solidarity and, and, the, and the nato alliance um so i do not think that nato objectively posed a threat to russia at all it hasn't been strong enough we didn't start putting more troops into poland that the russians complain about all the time until russia invaded ukraine in 2014 and then you started seeing you american boots on the ground in poland and missile defenses um, et cetera, building out in, in there that the Russians complained about. That only happened in response to their invasion in 2014. Um, however, I, I do, I am persuaded that we could have possibly uh, permitted countries joining NATO to do it slower or in a way maybe diplomatically that could have continued to convince and demonstrate to Russia that, that, that this was a this is a defensive alliance and it's not a problem for you as long as you don't threaten the alliance. And there are different moments as different countries join where I think that that's especially more compelling. Um, so I was against expanding NATO uh, uh, pre-February 2022 when Russia invaded Ukraine again. And then I was very enthusiastic about Finland and Sweden joining. And, and people and I kind of people said, well, isn't that hypocritical? I said, it's it's not, because the, the whole point of, of my view of not further expanding NATO was to continue to convince the Russians that we're not content, we're not encroaching on you. We're building a defensive alliance and we don't need to add members. We're pretty satisfied with where we are. We just need to be stronger. Um, but once Russia invaded Ukraine again, it's like, bring on the Finns and the Swedes. And they understand that they could certainly 
um, be at great risk if they don't have that security and guaranteed of Article 5. So my mind is much now more open. I kind of think the Russians really messed this up for themselves. And I have a much you know, more open mind um, to, to other countries joining the alliance now at this point. Well, and in fact, one of our listeners wants to agree with you that thinking that NATO has not been a tremendous help to Ukraine, part because of the divisions that you've talked about. Um, but then the listener wants to know, sort of thinking geopolitically and geostrategically, what does Ukraine have to stand on? They, they seem to be entirely dependent on honest alliances, as our listener puts it. Um, who are those honest alliances for them now? Um, I, I One of the most remarkable shifts that has happened through the war is the closeness between Ukraine and Poland. Poland is as sincere and as determined and dedicated to the security and the defense and seeing Ukraine prevail as any country that I've seen sort of throughout in private and public um, by demonstrating with the, their care for refugees and their, their constant, essentially, giving them everything that they have from in their own stocks, military weapon stocks, as long as you know they can continue to keep their front line um, secure. So, and at great, at great, um, I would say risk, but really it's it's not it's it's just a it's a courage it's courage uh, of saying that no we have, this is this is this important. So Poland, the way I kind of see it is there's essentially two blocks in NATO. It's Britain and Poland. Romania and the Baltic nations, they are on, they are in the, we need a just war, meaning Ukraine prevails in terms where you, where Ukraine is satisfied with the outcome. Ukraine is stronger and, and NATO's Eastern front is, is now bolstered. Um, and then on the other block of the NATO alliance, and, and I will say the Finns, I mean, you even, I've been really impressed. I mean, there's, there's some other things that are changing now with Northern Europe. Um, as well. So there's some shifting happening, but that's essentially, I think, the solid block that's pro-Ukraine. And then there's the Germany and France, both of the two of those countries jousting for power over the European Union together, and that's creating problems. And then and then also, you know, Macron. Really, we, we don't have a strong American leadership right now. And when you don't have strong American leadership, you know, Macron tends to think this is the French, the French moment again. <laughs> And, and so he kind of does that. And then the Germans continue to have a problem um, in this regard. Now, those are the wealthier European Union countries. And so it's been extremely disappointing to see them not contribute more and actually get behind and unite with what I call the just war, the ones that want the just war block of the NATO alliance, the, the, the eastern side. And then the United States has essentially been straddling those two blocks. Um, I wish that President Biden would throw in with the eastern Europeans and the Brits because I think if he did that, you would necessarily have to bring the other members of the NATO alliance along by kind of doing the both sides thing, we really do ourselves in Ukraine a great disservice. Well, this brings us to the question, I think, of US policy and what you think US policy should be, your criticisms of it up till now and your, your thoughts on what US policy should be going forward. Uh, so my, my view is that, you know, we, we should, a, a lot of, there, there's a criticism from some, even in the sort of populist Republican right, that those like me who, who've been critical of the Biden administration from not being strong enough, that we haven't learned sort of anything from the wars of the past where the United States hasn't won, there's been these long protracted wars, do we have a direct interest in this, et cetera. 
my response to that is that no, actually I'm taking lessons from long wars since 9-11 where we didn't have a clear theory of victory and didn't have a strategy and then didn't resource it to actually carry out that victory. What I'm saying here now is we're not the ones fighting. This is smart Cold War thinking. This is what Reagan did too. You, where you have partners and allies who are willing to defend themselves and fight for freedom and the sovereignty of their nation, they are a friend of the United States and that we can contribute to some degree to the extent that we can. We're providing weapons. So I think what the United States should do is have work with the Ukrainians and the winning block of the NATO alliance and say, what do we have to do? You develop a strategy and then you resource that strategy with the kinds of weapons. I've been very much in favor of providing Ukraine with the weapons that are the really nasty ones that the Russians don't want them to have. Um, cluster munitions, et cetera, or longer range strike systems that can get where they are, where the Iranians are training the Russians in just on the other side of the border in Russia on Iranian drones that are being used to, to attack civilians and infrastructure in Ukraine. The United States should be giving the Ukrainians operational leeway to go hit those things. They're not going to go to, they're not attacking Moscow. They're attacking the the, the, the weapon systems that are being used to attack Ukraine, and we shouldn't hold them back or prevent them from doing so simply because it's in Russian territory. So that's an example. And I think once you start executing that kind of strategy, um, then you're gonna see uh, an uptick in, in, in regular Ukrainian successes and getting closer to the end of this war. And then finally, you know, I think that it is time that we move some American troops that are still in the, in the Western European countries, mainly Germany, and shift some of those to what I call the NATO front, Eastern front, which is making sure that Poland, Lithuania, and those countries have strong um, uh, American and allied NATO presence there to deter further conflict. And that's where you have weak allies are very dangerous. Strong allies are a force multiplier for the United States. And so that's my hope um, for, for the United States moving forward and trying to get to the end of this war on terms that are good for the American people and the NATO alliance. And Ukraine, of course. And along those lines, a listener is very interested to know your thoughts on the importance, not, not of the Biden administration simply sending money to Ukraine, but in fact, oh, yeah. sending crucial weapons systems to end the war. And particularly, this person talks about aviation equipment. And how close is that to actually possibly happening? So uh, uh, it's a really good question. Um, I I have actually said, you know, it's, 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 and I'm, I'm sensitive. I've got friends in the Biden administration. So it's like, you know, I'm sensitive that I'm totally armchair quarterbacking this war when they're the ones that are in there trying to make these decisions. And so it's really not fair to some degree. But in theory, in sort of the way I'm watching this and hearing this, I would say the United States and, and the Biden administration has just not been good at this. The Trump administration was better at it. But being an ally does not mean you can't lean on your allies and get them to do more. I would be, when it comes to NATO, saying, listen, the United States should do what, the, what only the United States can do, which is lead this war effort and provide these Soviet-era weapons that the United States has. I mean, they are fulfilling their, their telos. This is their whole point and end and purpose is to hit Russian tanks. This is what these weapons were designed to do, and the Ukrainians are pointing them the right way, and they are doing it. And so it's not, we're not wasting our weapons by having Ukraine take out and degrade the military of a top tier strategic adversary of the United States. And so we should be looking at, that's something we're good at and we can do that. 
And then we should also be rebooting our military industrial base to produce more weapons, check, definitely. But we should be leaning hard on these wealthy Western European countries to be doing a lot more of the economic rebuild, humanitarian aid, et cetera, has been my view. They've got the resources. If they don't want to be providing the, the weapons, et cetera, they don't want German weapons, you know, back in, you know, firing at Russia. Okay, understand that you've got a big, deep pocketbook and we fully expect you to do a lot of the economic rebuild for Ukraine. The listener made the great point about air, um, um, uh, the Ukrainian Air Force. And that's what we, sh we should certainly be doing that. I mean, big, heavier drones. I've been in favor of the F-16s, F-16 fighter jets are not probably not going to get there fast enough to affect this particular war, but they would certainly send a strong political message that Ukraine is going to be trained on these serious fighter jets and they're going to have a serious air force when this is over. In other words, you should be helping Ukraine fight this war as though NATO would be fighting it because we're not fighting it. And you shouldn't be just keeping it essentially Soviet country versus Soviet country, you know, help them fight this the way we would do it if we would be doing it. And that would be a lot more air um, effort from the air, bigger drones, um, fighter jets, longer range strike systems, et cetera. Um, a listener wants to know, as we uh, re re uh, reach toward our conclusion, I think a really interesting and important question, what is the end game for the US in this conflict? So good news, bad news. <laughs> I don't think necessarily the president of the United States knows. And so that is the bad news. That has been a very uh, big, prominent and consistent criticism of mine, of my government, whom I'm rooting for and want to succeed. Um, but that's very dangerous. That And that criticism is real and legitimate. And that's very dangerous. I think that the end state should be that Ukraine is whole and it's in it and it exists as a Ukrainian sovereign nation and can get back to rebuilding, moving forward, and that we have a strong Eastern Front of NATO, that Russia is seriously degraded and unable to regroup and launch another invasion in the foreseeable future. Um, and furthermore, I'll say this is really important. I'd kick myself if I didn't say this. You know, there's a lot of people who say, look, this is just not that important to the United States. The most important thing is China and China potential and potential invasion of, 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 of Taiwan and that what's going on in the East and South China Seas is far more important. And, and I would just say it's, it's to the world is too complicated to just chop it up like that and look at one versus the other. Russia and China are collaborating. China wants Russia to prevail. So to the extent that we can make sure Russia does not, that's that's good for us and bad for China. But furthermore, because of this war, the, the, the military and, and, and business, private sector are actually finally uh, doing things that, we, that have been very hard and bureaucratic to get them to do, which is to, to reboot old production lines of weapon systems that now we can use for Ukraine and for Taiwan and in the, in the Pacific context. And I mean, think of the, um, the HIMARS system that we're, that we're getting to, to Ukraine now, the Australians um, have an order for them as well. And so that has been very, very good. So there's been other, it's a tragedy, but there's been other very good things that we can take advantage of them because we want the United States when this is over to replenish our own stocks, reboot the defense industrial base so we can produce the weapons we need, demonstrate we're a good ally, that countries should choose us versus the China-Russia developing axis of imperialist authoritarian countries. And that in the end, um, we've essentially deterred further conflict because of how well we've performed here as an alliance in Europe so that we don't have another war, which would be far worse in the Pacific. 
And then if I can just say the last part of this, because I'm talking to folks who are in Ohio too, you know, between the United States, uh, between North America and, and Europe, I mean, that constitutes like, I think it's like 45% of the global economy. I mean, it's, a, it's huge. Um, a lot of what, what, what Ohio relies on for their uh, trade um, is with the European Union. And so you want to have a strong and secure and stable Europe um, so that the American uh, families in Ohio throughout the Midwest and the United States can continue to prosper and flourish. And so we have great uh, interests, the United States, in ensuring and demonstrating that Europe remains safe, secure, and free. And that remains true now, even though we have a serious and growing threat coming from, from China um, towards the Pacific and beyond. Mm. Thank Rebecca Heinrichs, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us to offer these really um, interesting insights, thoughtful argument, and taking the time to answer so many questions. We had so many that there are many, I'm afraid that we can't get to all of them, but I appreciate all of our listeners submitting those questions and taking the time to be with us. That's a very important issue, complicated, complex. And Rebecca, thank you for taking the time to lay out those complexities and give your thoughts on how the U.S. should act. Well, thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to do it. It's incredibly important, um, and I would encourage everyone to continue, even though it's going to get back out of the news um, as the news cycle kind of looks on to other more exciting things, um, to just remember Ukrainians are fighting for their country, and they are a worthy people. They've done exactly what we've said allies should do, which is care more about their people, their security, their nation than we even could, and they're demonstrating that. And so it's the onus is on us to continue to to supply them with the weapons they need to prevail. I want to thank everyone for joining us this evening in the conversation. Uh, a link to a recording of this will be uh, sent to you. So if you have friends, relatives, colleagues who you think would be interested in hearing this conversation, please send that on to them. We want to get this conversation out as far and wide as possible and help to spur the conversation about this really crucial uh, geopolitical event that's deeply affecting the United States. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.